you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen as well, but you can open up to James 1. As always, we like to stand in reverence and awe of God's living and active word. We're going to do James 1, starting in verse 9. James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt or be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. This is God's word. We are continuing in our series called Wise Love, going through the book of James, and we're walking together. And what James is all about is is really, it's about wisdom and faith that works. Not faith that I hope works out in the end if I just make these steps forward, but faith that actually works and wisdom that actually works no matter the situation or circumstance that, you, that we find ourselves in. It's about God developing in the Christian a wisdom and maturity in every situation. And just for a quick review, for those of you who maybe you're new or you, 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 you haven't been here in the past couple weeks, just for a quick review, remember James is the half-brother of Jesus who came to faith in Christ after Jesus' resurrection, which again makes sense if he's your brother and your brother tells you he's God until he resurrects. You're probably not uh, believing much of what he's saying. Then he resurrected and James said, oh, no, he really is God. So I'm just going to serve him and go pastor a church in Jerusalem. That's what he did. So he's leading a church in Jerusalem. And what the book of James is, is James is writing to a group, a, a, a community, a church community of Jewish Christians who are in the middle of a whirlwind of trials. They're being exploited by the Gentiles. They essentially were forced into homelessness and were disfranchised. They were robbed and pulled into and forced to be subject to the elite Gentiles. And to give you a picture, James is writing to a church that has less standing in society than a slave, history tells us. And among these people in this church community are people who were, there are a lot of Christians when um, Stephen was martyred were able to take off and to find refuge in other cities. These are the Jewish Christians left over after persecution started. And they are continuing to experience persecution. And so what James is writing to is a group of people who are economically low, but there are also some who are economically wealthy. 
And as we've already read in James, he's a pastor writing a letter, and it kicks it off with saying all of those trials that you're facing, church, the persecution, the difficulties, the uncertain circumstances, he says count it as joy but because behind the scenes of everything that's going on in the life of you, the church, God is working in you and through your circumstances to bring redemption and continue his work of making you, the church, more and more Christ like. He said the testing of your faith, Heath mentioned this a couple weeks ago, will give you the skill for living. And that's essentially what wisdom is, the skill for living. And today what we're going to see is not only does he give us the skill for for living, but wisdom and faith also gives us staying power. These circumstances will literally give you a toughness of faith, James says. And in our scripture today, James is showing us that God, what God's plan for you and for me and for us as a church when we go through trials. As we've said, these Jewish Christians are facing trials from all sides. And what James knows is when you and I face difficulties, there are two things that are always threatened when it comes to our life with Christ, our faith. And number one is how we view ourselves in God tend to really just become destroyed through trials if we aren't first going through those trials with the right view of ourselves and, of course, of God. And number two, how we deal with our desires. Because wrapped up in every circumstance is a desire. And James is going to show us that wisdom knows how to direct those desires in the right direction and how to avoid the wrong ones. And while the enemy would love to pull you and me away from our father, James is reminding this church, this isn't time to pull away, but this is time to lean into our heavenly father. And there are three ways that I want to take from the text today that I believe will show us how God uses our trials to open up the window of our lives to his wisdom and the things that you and I will face in this life. And number one is he wants to reveal what's in our hearts. When you and I face difficulties and different circumstances in life, what happens is whatever's in our heart, right, comes out of our heart, right? So he's going to reveal our hearts. Number two, he's going to reorient our hearts. And he's going to retrain our hearts. Because you and I are stained and broken from sin. And we need a retraining of the heart. So that you and I can then zero in and focus on the things of God. And here's where we're going today. If you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the big idea. Here's at the end of the day, here's what I hope we're walking away with. It's that it's God's unchanging goodness that gives you strength and church, let's say amen, and sanity, right? Who needs some sanity today to remain steadfast in uncertain circumstances? James says in verse 9, And then in verse 10, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So the low needs to get high. And then in verse 10, he says, and the rich in his humiliation, the high need to get low. 
Let's talk about the low first. Remember who he's writing to. These Jewish Christians are not just uh, experiencing a little bit of economic uncertainty. They have been stripped and forced into poverty and as well as society looks at them as less than, let's, let's just be honest, probably less than dirt. This is how they are treated. And to the low and to the poor, he says, you might be economically low, James says. You may even be viewed by the popular culture of the day as low and treated as low. But what God reveals to the lowly today is what our hearts are depending on. He says, let the lowly boast. And that word boast is implying there is something for the poor to take pride in, to boast about to get excited about. But we all know that the difficulties that you and I face and the hardships of facing cultural pressures and the pressure of being economically poor, that will beat a person's view down of themselves. So they had loneliness of mind. They weren't just economically poor and low, they were, they viewed themselves as low. If you can imagine having everything stripped from you and then the culture saying, get out, you're less than, you're worthless because of your faith, they had loneliness of mind. So when James says to the low, you are high, that is a reversal from the cultural narrative and their own personal narrative of what low looks like and feels like. It's a new way to be human. James is saying to the low, you have reason to boast. Why? Because your inheritance is with the kingdom, is in the kingdom of God. Instead of seeing yourselves as economically low, see yourselves in the heights of your inheritance, and that is in the kingdom of God and what God has provided for you and for me. And we'll get a little bit more into that in a minute. And then James speaks to the high, to those wealthy. And what he's saying is in verse 10, he's echoing what Jesus said in Mark 10, that it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And but for the ungenerate, those who aren't yet in the family of God, those who haven't experienced the, the, the miracle of salvation, those who haven't yet experienced redemption, what wealth does for the human soul is work against the primary requirement for entering into the kingdom of heaven, and that is helpless dependence. See, we tend to use, in our culture, we tend to use words like privilege to describe the wealthy in our society. But James is flipping that on its head. And he's saying, actually, spiritually speaking, it's possible that it's the opposite. For so many of you that you're experiencing wealth in this life, we risk, this, we risk spiritual bankruptcy, we risk the requirement of walking into the kingdom of God, and that is helpless dependence. And God is revealing to the rich that your trial may not be, where am I going to find food tomorrow? Where is the payment for my mortgage going to come from? 
Or where will I sleep tonight? But the fight, the trial that you might be facing is against the lie that your wealth is going to live on forever. It's resisting the temptation to trust in your own resources, but to trust in God's. In other words, success can be more dangerous than failure because it communicates a false message that I'm the one in control, that I'm the one to depend on. It has the power to drive us further from God's heart. And so James is saying, for those of you who are still, by God's grace, wealthy and not experiencing the economic lows that your other brothers and sisters are facing, be warned that there is dangers in that too. You know, growing up in Arizona, I have seen some crazy things melt. Right? Anyone been to Arizona? Anyone? Uh, southwest part of Arizona, right? Because the north part's a little bit nicer. But the southwest part is where I grew up. I've seen some crazy things melt. I've seen mailboxes, metal mailboxes, go from one winter to the summer leaning this way. It's insane. It's insane. I've seen billboards begin to melt and to fall forward. It's, it, it's crazy. But every summer there, you also know that the heat of the desert gets so intense that the ground will literally burn your feet. So sandals are essential. And so you got sandals everywhere you go in the house, whether it's in front of the door or the back door, they're everywhere because your feet will burn. But we also know that the grass, if you have grass, which is very not common um, where I come from, um, but if you do have grass and you have plants and different flowers and, and things like that, you also know if you don't water them within a day, the plants and the grass will wither and they will go from vibrant to parched within just a day or two. It's crazy. The sun rises like a ball of fire, bringing a furnace of heat into the desert, leaving the plants and grasses hanging by a limb. And James is comparing our wealth to what it's like in the heat of the desert wind. Everything looks great one day, within a couple days, then it's taken away. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, so the low should get high, and the rich in his humiliation, the, the high should be low, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers, the grass, its flowers fall, and its beauty perishes. And then he says, so also the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. And this is why, whether it's the difficulty of experiencing financial lows in life or the trials of trusting in your own resources for what you need in life, God's plan for trials is to reorient our heart to mold with his heart. Amen? And what we see in James is the great reversal of how we view our lives and how we view God. Once we only knew the picture that the culture painted and the things that we thought about ourselves, but now God wants to reverse that. He wants to take our little kingdom perspective and give us a God's, his kingdom perspective. And there are no, in the economy of heaven, there are no economic highs or economic lows. There are just heirs to the kingdom. 
Romans 8, I love Romans 8, verse 17, or 16 and 17, he says, and this is our inheritance, church, today. So whether you're low or high, this is for you and for me. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And guess what? If children, that makes us heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But check this, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Notice we are heirs, but he doesn't shy away from mentioning that suffering is a normal part of the Christian experience. That verse, as heirs, it's not just a future reality. Yes, it's a future reality. And although we won't fully know it on this side of glory, but this heavenly status is not only something to look forward to in the future, but it's meant to be lived out in our lives today. It's meant to impact the way that we view life and go through whatever circumstances, high, low, that we go through. We go through them as heirs to the kingdom of God. And that's why James, with confidence in the gospel, can say to the poor and the beat down, I see you and your afflictions, church, but your afflictions do not dictate your inheritance. And then he says to those who are tempted to want more and to trust in wealth, it's not about better budgeting tools. It's, it's about a heart of surrender. It's about a helpless dependence on the maker of heaven and earth. It's about understanding that your wealth can be here today and like the desert wind rushing through the flowers, it can wither within a day. It's the great reversal. One of my favorite all-time verses, if I had to pick a life verse, this might be it. First Peter 2.9, he says, this is our inheritance. This is who we are. This is our identity as, as believers, as apprentices of Jesus, we are a chosen race. I could preach all day. We are chosen by God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and amen, a people for his own possession. And what this does for you is it not only gives us a new outlook on life, but this is wisdom. Because what wisdom does is it gives you and I two new things to walk through this broken world together. Two new things. Number one is new lenses. New lenses. We're no longer bound to the cultural narratives and standards that you and I came to Christ with. We are freed by Christ from those boundaries and given new lenses to see life in ourselves through those. In other words, we trade the kingdom of this world perspective for a kingdom of heaven perspective. It also gives us new lenses for the future. The existence of eternity, church, tells us that since the life, this life is not our final destination, but it's preparation for a final destination. We are not meant to use our resources to turn our now into our own little personal paradise. But the existence of eternity confronts our destination mentality and shapes how we view our lives and our future. In other words, what we 
choose to spend our time and resources on is a reflection of our destination mentality. Number two, new identity. Wisdom also gives us a new identity. If our new identity is a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, then that should outweigh and affect the way that we view ourselves and the way that we live our lives. I think the reason that so many of us forget this or we fail to live into this newly given empowered reality is that the story of the gospel hasn't yet captured our hearts and imagination. Oh, we, it's captured our knowledge, but it hasn't quite yet captured our affections and our imaginations. Think about it. What do, you do, what do you daydream about? When you think about what success is, what's your answer? If you were to lose everything tomorrow, how would you view yourself? See, if the cultural narrative still has a foothold on our imaginations and hearts, then we will never experience the freedom and the benefits of this new identity that God, through Christ, by his blood, has given to you and to me. So we live under the story, if we live under the story of the world well, that captures our hearts and imagination, instead of leaning into our new identity, we begin to trade the story. And what, what we need to do is ask God today to help us and to capture our affections and our imagination to trade the story of whatever story we're living under. Because we're all living under a story. It doesn't matter where you come from or what background. We all have some sort of narrative that we lean into and live out of. And that's how we view ourselves. And today, church, what God is saying is we can do the great reversal and trade our story for a better story, for the true story of the world, and, and, and rather than whatever culture is feeding us today. Amen? It's about leaning into the ways of the kingdom and dying to the standards of the culture. And for the wealthy, a life flourishing is seeing yourself as low, being free to view yourselves in light of the gospel, that you are helplessly dependent on Christ and his work. You are free to stop trusting in your resources, free from the anxiety of needing more and more and more. And for the poor, a life of flourishing is seeing your spiritual advantage. And he's reminding us today to view ourselves from the heights of our inheritance rather than the, the lower depths of our economic status. James is bringing in the church, this audience, back to what wisdom is. And it's a revision of life. It's a new way of living. That our trust is meant to reorient our hearts and our affections towards God, his resources, and his promises. Because wisdom knows, if you're writing those down, this is, maybe this is for you, but wisdom knows that what we behold dictates who we are becoming. Wisdom knows that what we behold in this life dictates who you and I are becoming. And that's why James is saying, even in your trials, God is maturing you as you are beholding him. But we also know that we need to retrain our hearts. James in verse 12, 
goes on and says, and it's, he, you know, he's addressing the, the poor and the rich and the different trials that they're facing. And remember, the, the, for you know, the low to go high and the, the high to go low. And then he says, but blessed is the man. So remember, this is still connected to that verse that you and I talked about with Heath the, the other day. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials of all kinds. And, and then he's talking about the different trials that you and I are going to face in this life. And then he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, because for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, for each person, when he is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. Then he says, do not be deceived, my beloved Brothers, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of this own will he bring us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So when you and I go through and face trials, there are two things that I think typically pop up in our mind that James is aware of in the church that he's writing to. And it's number one is, when I'm going through and facing various trials, is it worth it to keep serving God when it gets really hard? And number two, should I, or, and, should I just cave into my desires that are tempting me right now? Think about it. The poor would be tempted to give up on life, accept their plot, give in to believing they're low. At least they know who they are, right? The rich could give in to believing that they always need more, and that's, it. that's their worth. Their value and provision is never inseparable from their bank account. See, when you're going through, when you and I are going through trials, it touches our desires. It makes you want an escape. So the drink, right? Quick look at porn. To give in to some other desire that is less than God's plan for you and for me. Just to numb the pain. What James is saying is we need to retrain our hearts because the reality is that as as you and I have inherited sin in this world, and as we live in this broken world, you and I have hearts that desire those things before they desire the things of God. And because now you and I are redeemed and made new and filled with the Holy Spirit, we are free not to love those things, not to go there anymore, and free now to be in Christ and to choose the things of God. But we need to retrain our hearts. Because the reality is that when you and I face these different trials in life, whether rich or poor or high or low, you and I will face different desires and we'll go back to our old ways or at least we'll think about our old ways. And it takes a retraining of our hearts in the gospel to say, no, I'm not walking back into that sort of bondage or slavery. I am free and I don't need to do that anymore because my help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. Amen? Amen. 
In other words, God's plans for your trials, no matter how big or small they are, is to retrain your heart to match your desires with Christ's desires. I love what Paul Tripp says. He's one of my favorites. He says, God will take us where we haven't intended to go in order to produce in us what we could not achieve on our own. So to reshape our thinking from the story of what the culture wants us to buy into and the brokenness of sin to the story of the gospel and so that with confidence we can finally believe that our investment in obedience is finally worth it. And when I say worth it, here's what I think James wants us to know is that God is sovereign and in control of our circumstances. And because of that, the different things that you and I are going to face are not meant to bring, are meant to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can actually see God for who he really is. And so maybe today you're going through it. And it's a difficult season. And God isn't overlooking those difficulties. And he's not, not hearing your prayers. But is it possible that what you and I are going through, good or bad, but I want to talk to those who are going through the difficulties right now, is it possible that God is attempting to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we retrain our hearts and relearn what it means to be helplessly dependent on our Savior and King Jesus. Notice what James is doing here. They are meant to develop us into greater faithfulness and dependence and to greater awareness for, of the love of God for us. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. The key quality that retrains our hearts towards Christ's likeness here, uh, James says, is steadfastness. And steadfastness is a fixed direction. It literally is a firmness of purpose. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown which God has promised to those who love him. Every trial will bring temptation with us, and when we face financial difficulties or other difficulties, we are tempted to distrust God's provision, and when we lose someone, we are tempted to question God's love. When we experience unjust suffering, we are tempted to put God's justice on trial and his love on trial, but know this, God may test us, but according to verse 13, he does not and cannot and will not tempt us. We are responsible in those temptations. And that's why wisdom retrains our hearts so that, that old, those old desires that creep up, we can say, I am free from those. For some of you millennials, you can say, not today, Satan. This is why James uses birth language to describe sin 
because we're guilty of giving space in our lives and feeding to these, into these desires. James says that what sin does is it starts out a small, and you might ask, how, how would this get any bigger? I got this under control. I got this, right? It's me and God, and we're a dynamic duo going through life, and I, I got this, and it's more of like, no, it's me and me going through life instead of me and God. But, you know, we've all been there. We've all had those conversations with ourselves, and it starts out small. You might ask, how would this get any bigger? But get, and then it gives room. You give it room to develop, and then you feed it a little, And it's given the ability to grow in our lives, and then it takes on a life of its own, except a life that leads to more death and destruction in our lives and in the lives of people. Because what sin does is it not only destroys our life and infects our life, but what Satan wants is not just you, he wants every single person in your world to be affected by this sin. So he's going for it big time. And so we need rescue from our broken desires and imperfect thoughts. We need rescue from believing we can rescue ourselves so that our desires line up with Christ, which then produces and shows up as fruit in our actions. And then James ends the section with saying the goal is that you see God for God. He says that every good and perfect gift comes from the father of lights. And this doesn't change, he says. It never changes. James is calling him the father of lights and he's pointing towards his, what he's literally doing is he's pointing towards God's eternal nature and his light and he's saying that he is eternally light and morally good. In other words, God's goodness is at the center of God's handiwork in our lives. And it never changes. So yes, your financial status might change. Seasons change. Your difficulties come. The phone call happens. You get the text message or the email or the diagnosis. But one constant in all of life is the one who doesn't change. change, And that's who James is pointing us to in this church today. And he's saying he's the one that we depend on and bank on and helplessly depend on. He's the one. He's the one who's eternally good and morally good and eternally light. This doesn't mean that life won't hurt, church. Or, ad- or automatically as apprentices of Jesus now where sh- some sort of weird shield is going to be in between us and our difficulties and our, and our pain. But what we can trust is no matter the outcome, it we may be that the gift of God is his goodness in the darkest of moments. And I'll wrap up with this story. My son Micah, who was sitting over there, was born a month early. There was already some complications with the pregnancy, and he was born, and it seemed okay. Everything checked out, so we took him home, and a week later, I wake up, I think it was about 2 a.m. He was feeding with my wife, and she wakes me up, and I wake up to the face of my son who's no longer breathing. Come to find out his lungs collapse. 
His face turned purple and black and all the colors. You just don't want your newborn turning. So, of course, we call 911, and I'm in my pajamas in the ambulance holding my naked, just diaper baby, trying to keep on the oxygen mask, and we're going to the hospital. And for the next week or so, my son is on life support. And, man, especially those first three days, I, my wife, my family, we were a mess. And I remember the doctor coming in and talking to my wife and my daughter and myself and um, telling us that he has to, they have to do a test that you don't want any child to go through, a spinal tap. And we were told that, that like, you'd never want that to happen. And we were told there's no other way to find out but then just to do that. And so our hearts are just broken. And I go to the, the, the restroom of the hospital. I shut the door. I lock it. I just fall on the ground in tears. And I begin, I begin with praying, God, heal him. Make the outcome what I want it to be. Heal him. This is my son. This is my only son. Don't take him from me. And I remember in that moment, on the hospital floor, in the bathroom, staring at this, this toilet with tears in my eyes, flooded. And I remember... Not an audible voice, but a voice. And God saying, and I think he was saying, is not to trust in the outcome. But to trust that the one in the one who holds the outcome. Not to trust in the healing but to trust in the healer. And what I pictured that day was God as a rock, eternal and good. And that's what stood me up on the hospital floor that day, is the unchanging, unshakable love of my heavenly father who holds my son in his hands. And I walked out there not with a great outcome, not with a bow on the situation, but just a reminder and a retraining and a reorienting of my heart to the eternal nature and love of my God and King. Now, of course, my son's here and he's doing great. And he came out of the hospital strong and he's getting stronger. In fact, it hurts when he kicks me and punches me now and we wrestle and he's actually kind of strong now. You know, every dad has that moment where you're like, oh shoot, this kid might be stronger than me one day. It's pretty crazy. But by God's grace, we do have a bow on the story and he's doing great. But there's no way I could go through that or the circumstance that I had to go through with my wife almost dying without knowing that truth 
Not to stand in my cheap self-confidence, but in confidence in the maker of heaven and earth to, to heal with, with healing and to take away in this life. But his promise to redeem all things is an unshakable reality and an unshakable truth that carried me out of the hospital door that day with my son and later on in the years with my wife when she experienced the things that she experienced in the hospital. Those are the things, not pull up my bootstraps mentality, but a God who is pulling me up mentality, a retraining, a reorienting, because it's the unchanging goodness that gave me strength and sanity and kept me steadfast in those uncertain circumstances. And today, church, I'll end with this. It's the goodness of God that never changes that James wants to reveal to our hearts and then to reorient our hearts to and then to retrain our hearts to see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your goodness. We thank you that you are unshakably good. We thank you that no matter what circumstances we're dealing with today, that we can trust in the one who holds the outcomes in his hands. So God, retrain our hearts and our minds. Capture our imaginations today by the gospel story. And Lord, may we die to whatever other story we're buying into, whether it's from advertising, stories that friends are telling, whatever it might be, God, help us to die to those things so that we can live in wisdom and grow in the stature and maturity of Christ so that as apprentices of Jesus, the world would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.